0: Thanks so much.
1: Should we get started? Yes. Okay. Um, again, like Lisa said, thank you, Lisa. I love Unsung Heroes. an amazing project. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, Google A it. is just really an incredible um, thing that Lisa does. And thanks to Barbara for having us here. I am thrilled to be here. You are such an inspiration, Betty. So I'm excited to, to chat with you.
0: Don't be too... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, All right, so let's just talk about your book, Sign My Name to Freedom. Um, What kind of got you writing this book, and and what's the story behind the title?
0: The um, book grew out of the fact that I was living in Walnut Creek in the suburbs, um, and one of our church members of the Unitarian Church there was taking off. It was 1964. She was taking off to join um, a team of young people who were uh, leaving Cal, she was entering as a freshman, uh, to teach in a freedom school in Canton, Mississippi as a member of SNCC. Um, The night before Susan was to leave, her family had me in to to, um, a, a, a little farewell dinner at which time I impulsively gave Susan the string of pearls that I had around my neck, which had been given to me um, on my wedding day. I uh, asked her to wear those pearls underneath her t-shirts so I could have a presence in Mississippi as she was doing her work, and she did. We connected at that point I I guess I taught Susan in Sunday school, but um, in her letters home, she wrote about the fact that this woman in Canton, Mississippi, who was a black woman, had opened her home to SNCC, that there were a number of the students from the nonviolent coordinating committee who were living with her. She had dared, at the risk of her life, Uh, to go down to the courthouse and to register to vote um, against all odds. I knew that from letters home because Susan held her in such high esteem. She realized what that woman was risking. I wrote Sign My Name to Freedom in celebration of this woman that only lived in my imagination. But... um, It came at a time when I was unwittingly recording, documenting the Civil Rights Revolution without knowing that's what I was doing. Um, And Sign My Name came out of that. And when uh, the book was published, it was one of the names that was submitted to the publisher that was accepted.
1: Are you happy that that was the one that was accepted? Actually, I was disappointed.
0: (laughs) But I've since learned to accept
1: it. (laughs) What was the the one you wanted? There's
0: a great story about my great-grandmother that my grandfather, with whom I uh, spent most time, he was my best friend by the time I was about six years old, until I was 13. Um, He used to tell me about my great-grandmother, Leontine Bro allen who was born into slavery. 1846 in St. James Parish, Louisiana. Um, She was enslaved until she was 19 and freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. She became, for her village, the village midwife. She delivered all of the babies as an adult. She also was the person in that community in St. James Parish um, who met with Dr. Heidel, who was a circuit-riding doctor who came through about every three months on horseback. And her job, before he came through, was to go out and hang a white towel on the gatepost of every place where he was to visit. Um, that image had always stayed with me. And I knew her because I was 27 years old when my, when my slave ancestor died. I was... Married and a mother, so I knew her. Um, that image of her draping white towels on fence posts had stayed with me my whole life. And it is, as Stephen Sondheim, Sondheim says, children will listen, because I realized that I had spent my whole life hanging imaginary white towels on gate posts, that um, I had been offered jobs of um, leadership. Mm -hmm. I'd always chosen to be the second-in-command, that I was already doing that um, when I was working for Dion Araner as a field representative Mm -hmm. the state of California. And I'm also doing it now as a park ranger uh, for the National Park Service, that I had always turned down that leadership role in favor of hanging imaginary white childs on gateposts. And that's what I wanted the book to be read. I wanted it to be white childs on gateposts. <laughs> but um, you would have had to read so far into the book to even know what that meant. <laughs> that I was The publishers were right when they decided that, that um, this was not appropriate.
1: It's a great story, though. And I was, of course, going to ask you about your great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, because on top of that, is there any piece of advice that she gave you that's just resonated with you and stuck with you? No,
0: because she only spoke Patois French, hmm. um, which was a language that was lost to my family uh, about th- during my childhood, which is pretty much the way it is with second generation uh, people who are bilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents still talked Creole, but, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I... Um, Learned about her through my mother's younger sister and my grandfather. Um, I don't remember having conversations with her ever uh, because she never came to California. She remained in St. James Parish, Louisiana. And I came here as a six-year-old. So my, my um, uh, connection with her came through, through visits every, because our, our families were mostly, our, the men were mostly Pullman Porters. So we had family passes to visit New Orleans. Um, I would go home uh, as a family designate several times during my childhood, my teenage, because uh, that was, she became the magnet on her birthday every year. And people would gather from all around the country to, to join her, to celebrate these birthdays, especially in her later life. So I was able to do that.
1: She lived to be, what, 100. 102.
0: <laughs> yeah, she died in 1948.
1: Wow. Yeah. Do you do you, chop, do you say it's genetics or what do you what's your what do you attribute it to? I can't
0: I can't believe it's not just simply genetics because my m- grandmother lived to be 102, going from 1846 to 1948. My mother was born, who, who was raised by my great grandmother because her own mother died. Mother was seven months old, but. My mother was born 1894 and lived to be 101, dying in 1995. And I was born in 1921 and celebrated my 97th birthday back in September. So that means that the three of us, that those three lives bridge everything in the American narrative from the Dred Scott decision to Black Lives Matter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah
1: gives you chills. You know, it's amazing the amount of history that your family has experienced. Let's just go back to your childhood. You were born in 1921. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was life like for you as a child and as a teenager?
0: Well, I I, uh, came to California as a Mm six-year-old, but I had been born in Detroit, Michigan. Um, And that was, if anyone has read that incredible book by Isabel Wilkerson, of the warmth of other suns. If you've read that, you know that there was this exodus of um, people throughout the country. We were refugees in our own country, and my family was no exception to that. My grandfather was a, was a builder in New Orleans, responsible for many important edifices. Um, he um, was well-known, was, was a, a contractor, an engineer, and a millwright. Um, long before you could eat, get patents if you were a person of color so that his inventions could not be applied. He'd have to go through a white person to do them. Any of the buildings that he that he built had to be done under the permits and the licenses of a white contractor so that none, nothing that he had built had his name on it. Um, so that at the time, I was... Before I was born, my father and my grandfather were in his home office um, when a white man walked in off the street. Um, he came up to them, and my father, of course, was the apprentice to his father, um, and said something to my grandfather addressing him as Louis, which is, of course, the French pronunciation of Louis. Um, my father, who was a very proud Creole, took offense to of that and said, Do you know to whom you are speaking, Harry? <laughs> At a time when white men could only be addressed by their last names, if a person of color was addressing them, and black men were addressed by their first names. Um, my pa- family had to get my father out of New Orleans before sundown. My because he had addressed a white man by his first name. My mothers had some family in Detroit, Michigan, who were working in the Ford plant, so that they got the family. My mother was pregnant with my older sister. My mother, my father, um, and pregnant with my older sister, got on a, plane, a train and went to Detroit where I was born four years later. Um, it was at the time that I think I must have been three, when my grandfather was dying, that my family returned then to New Orleans. Um, I don't remember New Orleans at that time, but uh, I was there in New Orleans until I was six. So childhood, I grew up pretty much as a second generation California. Um, I don't remember much about New Orleans. What I do remember is in the book, but it's, but it's sketchy.
1: When do you think it was in your life, in your childhood or in your youth, that you became keenly aware of race and race relations?
0: Well, as other children, my, my life was made up when I was a small child of family members. So that um, I don't remember being introduced to the problems of race because at the time that I was a child, there weren't enough of us. Bigotry and segregation existed, of course. It had always. But there weren't enough of us people of color between Monterey and Sacramento to make any rules against. Hmm. So that the segregation was, was implicit. It was built into grants, uh, into deeds. Uh, where people could buy property, but but it wasn't. There weren't signs that said that you, know, you couldn't drink in this white, white fountain or that white that fountain or black people. So that I didn't grow up with the kind of segregation that entered our areas with the Second World War. Mm-hmm. It was. In fact, there were times because my social life was completely within either, either my family or the fa- the Creole families who, who had moved out of New Orleans, so that they were had settled here. So that my life did not become formally segregated until the Second World War, though... And there were times when I didn't know whether we were separate because we preferred it that way or whether we were separate because we were being left out. I mean, I just didn't know right. as a kid. And I think that, that a lot of us didn't.
1: Right. In California, it's a yeah. different, it's not the deep south.
0: Yeah. Right. I guess when I got to high school, it had, be, I had I'd gotten the message by then.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Um, so you graduate high school and you get married pretty much yeah. right after but, yes. but somewhere along the way, you dated Jackie Robinson, I heard you say, is that right?
0: Oh, yes, Jackie Robinson and a lot of Tuskegee Airmen. <laughs> As an aside, it was fascinating. It was Women's History Month when I was invited to go down to, to Moton Field to do uh, a presentation at the Tuskegee uh, Institute. And um, when I walked into that hangar that's now a museum, here was one of my dates on the wall, blown <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: bit of a heartbreaker in high school? No window, huh? I said, were you a bit of a heartbreaker in high school?
0: I didn't know it then. Yeah, I think, it, I think in looking back, you know, I must have been one hot dish, but I didn't, I didn't know it then. My ego couldn't afford it. Oh,
1: I love it. Okay, so you get married at 19, and at that point, it was at the start of the war, right? About the start of the war?
0: I The war broke out in December... 1941, I was married in May of 1942.
1: Okay yeah. So what kind of aspirations did you have for yourself at that point in your life? Obviously there weren't a lot of opportunities for women, particularly women of color.
0: No, and 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 it's also true. It's so hard to make the case for feminism, for feminism at this point. Because there's been so much change, mm-hmm. but that time, a successful woman was a woman who was married by the time she was twenty three and had her first baby by the time she was twenty five. and I was not I was compliant with that whole thing. Um, so I don't remember having it's also true that I remember a conversation my mother and my aunt were having that I should have known. Uh, was significant then, but I didn't. I only you know it in, in, in retrospect. But my mother was talking about a, a, a young daughter of their friends and saying they should certainly better educate that girl because she's never going to get a husband. <laughs> Which shows you that my parents, my parents, didn't even aspire to having me be educated at all. <laughs> right. and as, you know, and, and according to, to the recipe. <laughs> I was married by the time I was
1: 20, right? Yeah. And then, not long after that, you started working at the Boilers Maker Union. And what kind of work were you doing there?
0: I started to work for the boilermakers at a time when I was working actually at the uh, the uh, I guess the F- FBI headquarters in the basement of the federal building in San Francisco, um, and it meant that I was commuting across the bay. And at that time, uh, this would have been uh, when our main transportation was, was ferries. Mm-hmm. Um, the risk that I would be caught across the bay in a blackout became so strong with my parents that they insisted that I transfer to a job on this side of the bay, on the east side of the bay. Um, And that was, of course, just before I was married. And um, I did that. But because I was a transfer, I didn't have to make out any federal papers. And somehow my race got lost in the transfer. And I got a job uh, under the transfer working for the Air Force in the Leamington Hotel. They'd taken over the Leamington Hotel in downtown Oakland. But I didn't realize I had taken a job that, that uh, I was not qualified for by, by my race. Um, I was over there only, I think, just a few days when someone reported that I was not white. And there was a young woman whose desk abutted mine that we were both very new. So we had become friends very quickly. And I saw the lieutenant in our section motioned her to come up to his place. And she did. And their faces were red, and they were talking. And when she came back to her desk, I asked what that had been, because obviously they were looking at me while they were talking. Mm-hmm. And very red-faced, uh, she said, he was telling me that you're colored. Um, I jumped up and went to the front, to the desk, and said, you know, well, why, why, why? what does that, what difference does that make? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, who told you that I wasn't colored, you know? well, as it Was he turned, it turned out. Uh, he said, no, don't worry, Betty, I mean, we really, you know, I've talked with all of your workers and your supervisors, and, and everyone is willing to work with you, mm-hmm. and I thought, work with me? Are they going to work with work under me if I get my transfers, my, my upgrades? And he said, we'll see that you get your pay. And I went back to my desk and picked up my purse and walked down on the Air Force. While my husband, who was young, uh, he was, had left USF, where he was a playing left-half-back for the San Francisco Dons uh, in his senior year. Um, he had volunteered to fight for his country during the same period, found himself at Great Lakes. He was a third-generation Californian, not only his grandmother, his father, and he were all born in Berkeley General Hospital. And he had never had any experience with the system of segregation because we'd not. he'd never been in the South. Um, he got before a board of examiners because he refused at a time when that just wasn't heard of. But he said, I offered to fight for my country, not to cook. Uh, They had to hold him for three days, finally accepted the fact that he was sincere, um, that... um, there wasn't any way that they were going to be able to make a sailor out of him. So they decided that they were going to give him an honorable discharge, mustering out pay, put him on a bus for home. And um, not before telling him that he obviously was a natural leader of men, but that they couldn't put a man like that aboard a ship because it might spell mutiny at sea. He came home in disgrace and shame and went to his grave with that story, never even telling his kids, because he felt that he had failed his country. Now, while he was gone, that had happened to me with the Air Force. Um, he came back. We never told anyone about this, because his friends were all going off and fighting, flying with the Air Force, which was key. Um, he came back, began to work as a playground director at San Pablo Park in Berkeley as an assistant coach um, in the daytime and at the shipyards at night. Um, we, I got a job with the union, uh, which was the segregated union because the labor movement would not be racially integrated for another decade. Um, but that was our experience with the Second World War. Um, neither of us made it.
1: <laughs> and in that vein, can you talk about why you say you never identified with the Rosie the Riveter campaign?
0: No, because that was a white woman's story. The women in my family had been working outside their homes in slavery. Because in 1942, it took $47.25 a week to support a family of five. $47.25 a week, if you can believe it. Um, but that was if you were white. Our fathers and our uncles were all members of the service workers' generation. They were the Pullman Porters and the Red Caps and Bellhops and the janitors and the laborers. And our mothers were 35. 50 cents an hour domestic servants, cleaning white people's houses and taking care of white people's children. Because it had always taken two wages to support black families. It's not rocket science. I mean, few black men could do it in the service sector. So that Um, when the park was being created in Richmond, I was a field representative for a member of the California State Assembly, attending those planning meetings as a state employee. But realizing that this park was being created to honor the white women, um, the women who had worked at Rosie's, um, but I didn't identify with it because, as I say, the women in my family were not a part of that. And I wasn't boycotting it. It simply didn't say anything to me. So I didn't ever do that. Now, what I did do, and my fingerprints are all over that park. <laughs> what I did do was to, in that position, as a consultant, because I became very shortly thereafter a consultant to the National Park Service realizing that there was an incredible feminist story to be told and that that was the story of Rosie the Riveter and that needed a kick-ass white feminist who was just as enthusiastic as I was about my story, about that story and that that needed to be, but that there were, that that story was incomplete that there was also the story of 120,000 Japanese and Japanese-Americans who were interned and lost two and a half to four years of their lives of freedom. And much of their treasure, as it turned out, not a single case of sabotage or any kind of disloyalty was ever proven against any of them. And they lost their freedoms and their their resources simply because they looked like the enemy. It was simply a, a simple case of racial profiling. That story needed to be told because that was an important story, the home front. There's also the story of that great explosion of Port Chicago. 320 lives were lost, 202 of them being black dock workers. Um, the only time in history that we ever tried 50 people in a single trial because 50 of those men refused to go back and load their ships because nobody understood what had caused the explosion. I mean, it was all of the white, uh, all of the uh, officers at Port Chicago were white, and all the dock workers were black, and all the whites were given 30 days trauma leave, while all of the the uh, black dockers were ordered back to work, picking up body parts, putting them into 22 caskets, which were, were um, buried over at San Bruno Cemetery in the Sunset Cemetery as unknowns in the colored section. And it wasn't until I was a, a park ranger that I realized that there was a color section of a federal cemetery on the west coast. There were so many stories, and those stories are going to be ignored as we allowed that park to be a little more than a celebration of white women's emancipation into non-traditional labor, that the home front story was much bigger than that. And that when we give up our complexity, we give up much of our truth, and that that truth needed to be shared. And that was the reason I became a park ranger at 85, because you guys had forgotten all that stuff.
1: (laughs) How often, I know you speak at the park a few times yeah. a week. How often have you had people come to your presentations and say, my grandmother, my great-grandmother?
0: Absolutely. I think three-fourths of the people who walk in there want to talk about their story. They don't want to talk about ours.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: my great-grandmother was, you know, worked yeah. at the shipyard. Yeah. Yeah. And that is fine. Uh-huh. I think that I think that, that really is a, 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 a great... Well, the thing I've learned... From be, from being a park ranger for by by dealing with the public in that way, is that there are many truths, and that some of those truths are in conflict. There's a place on the film that we show. It's an orientation film, where Agnes Moore, a still living white Rosie, says it was the greatest coming together of the American people that I have ever lived through, and when that film was first released to us and I'd stand against the wall and I'd watch the people's faces in the half-light and I'd think, how can Agnes say that? She knows that isn't true and I'm going to talk to that woman. (laughs) And one day after my 90th birthday, I began to hear that as Agnes's truth when I realized that that probably was the greatest truth that Agnes had ever lived through the greatest coming together of the American people that she'd ever lived through, but that my truth was equally true and needed to be told. And as long as there's a place on the planet where that those truths can coexist, that that was going to be enough for me. And it's true that that is what happens at that park. Those truths coexist because they are equally true. Yeah.
1: I feel like that's a message that the country could use right now that there's, well, you know, but, um, and I know you sell we, out, we,
0: right? We get it mixed up with yes. fake news. Right. <laughs> that's right. not what I'm talking about. Apps,
1: <laughs> right. Okay. Um, uh, and I know you sell out oftentimes if we wanted to go see you at the shipyard, right? Your, your presentations sell out, your speeches.
0: We are now booked through May, yeah. but you see, the secret is that we have a, 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 a theater that only holds 48 people, so I sell out like
1: like Hamilton. (laughs) I know, actually, uh, one of your quotes that you often say in this sort of conversation reminds me of Hamilton. What gets remembered is a function of who is in the room doing the remembering.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It is what gets remembered is determined by who's in the room doing the remembering. We have to be in the room, and that's what I've been. I've simply been in the room. Yes.
1: Oh. The room where it happens. So let's talk about the Civil Rights Movement. What was your involvement? I know you were involved with the Black Panther- Panthers to some extent, but also during this time you were living in a suburb that was predominantly white. You were one of the few Absolutely families Absolutely, completely white, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, that was a struggle for me. It was a struggle that almost caught my sanity. I literally uh, went through a middle break at a point where my, I think my youngest was about three. Um, at a time when I was living in a world that I was trying to make rational a world that simply was irrational. Um, my Reclaiming my sanity um, was a struggle to find to finally accept the fact that I was living in an insane world. Mm-hmm. I was sane within that. <laughs> um, and that is literally how I how I did it. But the civil rights revolution found me at a time when I wasn't quite white enough for the suburbs, and I wasn't quite black enough for the Black Revolution. <laughs> and I was in a church. A Unitarian Church, where I think that we I mean, were the only black family, actually, in the first first until a second one came in. I think there are now three or four. But um, I was almost schizophrenic because I was in, I was on a national black committee of the Black Caucus of the Unitarian Church, funded. By a completely white church who was contributing to the Black Revolution through me. I was living in the suburbs, going into Berkeley to march with the Panthers on the Alameda County Courthouse. I was giving, participating in fundraisers. For the, I was a bag lady for the Panthers, <laughs> um, delivering money that I was raising in the suburbs to Kathleen Kleber and, um, in San Francisco. Um, it was a period where it was hard to hold on to sanity because very little was rational in my life then. Uh, I almost didn't. Um, I finally worked through that. And interestingly enough, I worked through it through music, through creating music. I um, taught myself to play guitar. Um, I found a way to travel distances deep inside myself because there was no way to escape the fact that my youngest child was was born, uh, was brain damaged at birth, was going to need care for all of her life. Um, I had to find ways to travel without, while well, she hung on to my skirt. Um, and I went inside uh, to where my six-year-old, to whom everything was possible, lived. <laughs> um, what I finally came to was the fact that there was a legitimate role for a middle-class African-American who wasn't quite black enough for the revolution or white enough for the suburbs, that I was choking on power. I could have parked my car on the C-hall lawn because the mayor was a member of my church and a good dear friend. The leaders in that community, the liberal communities, or people that I interacted with constantly. But those were the people who held the power that the urban folks were fighting and dying for, and that no one was going to grant power to a person, man with a brick in his hand, standing on the corner in Oakland, but that I was choking on it, and that my role as a middle-class, empowered person was to be a conduit for that power and to accept it and to deliver it to where it belonged. And that was the role that I chose, and that's the role that saved me because I learned to do that. I learned to be an interpreter for two sides of my life, Um, and that was the only way I could retain my sanity.
1: At that point, did you see yourself as an activist?
0: No. I was doing what I needed to do to survive. Um, I wasn't defining myself. Um, I only know in looking back um, that those are the words that describe what I was then, but I didn't know. No.
1: I heard you say that you, kind of, you feel essentially like currently you are living in the future that you are fighting for in the 60s.
0: I have lived long <laughs> enough to have lived into the future that along with millions of others I helped to create in the 60s. And I've lived into that future. I think that that's amazing. On yeah. yeah. the other hand, we are creating the future that my grandchildren live in right now. Right now.
1: Do you, living in this future now, future, do you think that we're farther along than you thought we'd be? Not as far along have we gone back?
0: No, but my definitions have been changing um, as I've aged. Mm-hmm. When I was a child, I believed that, that um, I guess all through high school, that democracy was promised me there was an entitlement that came with my birth
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I was offended and enraged along with everyone else during the 60s because those promises were unkept and after all they're mine um, until I reached an age maybe in my, began in my 60s or 70s where I began to understand that democracy is simply a, unfulfilled promise but it was envisioned Mm -hmm. by imperfect people that um, that has that every generation has to has to recreate it that it's something it's no more than a promise that that it's oh god I'm I'm still working that out (laughs) um (laughs) And here's where it gets mixed up. Because now I know that these periods of chaos are cyclical, that they've been happening since 1776, that we're in another one of them now. But it's in those periods of chaos that democracy is being redefined. That's when we have access to the reset buttons. That's also when we make the giant leaps forward. That I'm not enslaved like my great grandmother was. Um, that we—it's we, like we're on an upward spiral. We keep touching the same places at higher and higher levels. Um, but that—that—that that, that democracy has has to be redefined. That it's, it's never going to be fixed. That the magic words for me is, are, are forming that more perfect union, that that's that's going to be the constant. We will always be forming that more perfect union. The assumption is that it's not perfect. And it wasn't until this, a few months ago, I gave a talk at SUNY Broom, um, one of the New York community colleges in upstate New York. And when I walked into that room, it was filled with teachers and faculty, very diverse, but you could cut the despair with a knife. It was so strong. Um, SUNY apparent, apparently is in, in, is in, in Trump country. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew when I walked in the room, because I'm very intuitive, that that despair was there, and I was fighting against it the whole time I was talking. But when I walked away, at the end, the hugs were really warm. Uh, I could tell that something had happened. And it wasn't until I was on the plane ride home that I realized something had happened, but it was inside me, that I had been disappointed as a kid in the unfulfilled promises. But I suddenly realized that I had been transformed either at some point along the way. That there was no office of fulfillment. There was no secretary of fulfillment. That each of us becomes a fulfiller at some point. That we have to fulfill those promises. And that that's what had happened in that room with those kids that i had realized that like like my womanness i had i had to declare i had to declare my independence as a woman and that didn't happen until the men in my life died it had always been there i could have declared my independence all my life but i'd never seen that as a possibility until the men were removed from my life and then I had to be Betty. I was no longer Betty Charbonnet or Betty Soskin or Betty Reed. I was Betty, and I didn't know who in the hell that was. But it was also true as a fulfiller, that I had somehow transformed into a fulfiller. But I hadn't known when that was, and that had always been there. And that being a victim is simply incompatible with being a fulfiller. As long as I saw myself as a a victim, I was not going to be a fulfiller, but that I had become that, and that somehow that had come full center in that classroom at SUNY Broome. And and I came back, and that didn't come until my, what, 90s, -90s? (laughs) mid-90s? that I am still evolving. I am still becoming. Um, that's an amazing thing.
2: Um,
0: I'm speaking, I've I've been speaking for Nike, for Salesforce, for Google, for Facebook. For <laughs> I'm sitting in rooms where everyone is under 30. And all those things that my generation is still striving for, are taken for granted by a generation that has already seen the changes I'm still looking forward to. Um, I've become the subject of a virtual reality.
2: <laughs>
0: I've sat in my room, in, in, in my home, looking at myself through the ocular headset <laughs> and taken by with a camera that has a 360 degree image. It's, it's like being out of body. Um, to have lived into that time, you should all do it.
1: <laughs> oh, there's so much. There's so much I want to unpack from what you just okay. said. I love how self-reflective you are. Okay. Um, when we talk about that moment of chaos, though, um, yeah. that we're in, that we might yeah. be in right now, Something that I found fascinating that you've said, so I'd love you to expand on, is, and it makes sense, but it sounds shocking, is that you were elated by Charlottesville.
0: Absolutely. I sat and watched Charlottesville. I watched those cheeky plays. And I was feeling elated for a while. I couldn't think, why in the world is this? But I finally realized that that the sheets were off that the masks were down, that there was nowhere to hide anymore, that there was going to be a whole generation of people suddenly who are going to understand that many of us have lived with domestic terrorism for generations, that, that was no it was no longer possible to hide any place. And that, that for me, was really, really hopeful because the people who will become pseudo liberals, who really believe that they've already figured it out. I mean, come on. Um, there was no. There simply is no place to hide, uh, and we have an administration where that is becoming painfully true. Um, I think that the leaps forward now are so much more powerful, and that they are so much more possible because of what we're seeing.
1: Does that make any sense to
0: anybody? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So I want to ask you then specifically about here in Sacramento because um, the city is going through a bit of a period of unrest, particularly yes. this past week. We saw protests yeah. throughout the city. After Mr. The Clark, decision. yeah. Mr. Stephane Clark, yeah. And so what is your, have you, you know, you, it sounds like you've been following that. I'm kind of curious to get your take on that and what what you think it will take to heal the community and get past this. Oh, crisis. I wish I
0: were wise enough to know <laughs> because I don't know that anyone knows um We have now seen, sadly, a a pattern of tolerance for these kinds of things um, because we're no longer surprised by them. Mm -hmm. And that's tragic, and I don't know what the answers are. I, I, I wish I did. I don't know.
1: Your message, though, to the youth that have been out there protesting? I think the
0: most hopeful thing is that there are many, that the percentage of people of color who were marching in the streets in the 60s are not the percentages we see now. We're seeing people in the streets who are black and white and Asian and orange and green. and <laughs> we're seeing people of all ages. We're seeing people of all economic classes all marching on principle. That's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably the most po- most powerful thing that I can tell tell you.
1: Why have you never run for office? Because I
0: was hanging busy hanging my child on capos. <laughs> and I think I think I made the right choices. Yeah. I really do. I really do. I think that my instinctive choices were were right. I think that I as I ran into blocks, I simply grew off different edges. And I think that I'm still doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. It's not too late um, <laughs> to run for office, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I guess I, it sounds like you've You've been- got to be Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've been looking... <laughs> I've Justin been looking. is my boyfriend who's also photographed. <laughs> How
0: long ago did you photograph me there? 2013. And I remembered him. <laughs> That photo on the
1: poster back there is his photo. The one of I love that photo. Yeah, he was with Getty. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, you spotted him. Uh, so, okay, so I think you were trying to get around... I feel like you are getting around my question about running for office. You were trying to i No, I've
0: ne- I've, seriously, I have never, never, never yeah. aspired to run
1: for office. But you've been wooed. I guess that's why the question... It sounds like people have kind of asked you or wooed you to, and you just never really felt it. Yeah,
0: that. I, but it always... It never seemed to... I'm not even sure what the reason is, except that I didn't ever feel adequate to it. Hmm. It's like I never went to college. Um, I think I got a a non-traditional PhD because I married a professor at the (laughs) University of California. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I never... I really never did. I always... It wasn't until I was a faculty wife, I think, that I began to get a strong sense of, of my place in the world intellectually, because I realized that my husband, who was an eminent psychologist, research psychologist, knew everything there was to know about this much of the world. He didn't know at a very high level, (laughs) and I did know at a very low level. (laughs) Um.
1: Since it is International Women's Day, and I think you sort of touched on this with your answer there, but I wanted to ask you, sort of as a young woman, I think we often can be, women can be sort of um, overcome with self-doubt. And I know Michelle Obama talks about this in her book, The Coming, and how, have you ever experienced that? It sounds like you have, and how have you overcome it?
0: I'm not sure I've ever overcome it. I think that... I remember when when I married Bill that I kind of overcompensated. Yeah. but I always felt that if I know this much, think of what they know. All the people around me who were, had advanced degrees, and I was so impressed with that, that it wasn't until, I guess, five years maybe into that marriage that I began to see their humanness and not be intimidated by it. But I really was in awe because I'd never been to college. Mm-hmm. I was in in I was in awe of people who had advanced degrees. That may have been why I I uh, never saw myself as being adequate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I've since had two honorary doctorates. <laughs> 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 I'm still wondering why.
1: <laughs> as a 90
0: year old myself. Yeah.
2: I hate
0: the things that happened to you, but I love you. There isn't one minute that I regret of my of my life <laughs> Yeah. the Yeah. Yeah, thank Over you. There. Yeah. The yeah. What's not always sweet? There's only one disagreement
2: in your whole show, and that was the
3: Japanese. Because we fought. there were four yeah. Japanese
0: diplomats
3: sitting in Washington. Yeah. Signing a peace treaty when they bombed Pearl Harbor. Right. Mm. right. And there were Japanese killing our kids, black and white, in the Philippines in the most brutal way possible. And I think you would find it still difficult
2: to sell the Japanese to us back then.
0: It's. No, well, but. The, the rest th- of it. Th- the th- thing that I, that I that I see you doing mm. is that. that The the families that I work with in in the families that I work with in in um, the National Park Service. Oh wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Those families, the Sakai family, came to the United States in 1899, and Charlotte Sakai's great grandfather is one of the co-founders of the Japanese uh, of the of the flower market in San Francisco. The Nehemiah family came in in 1913. These were not Japanese, they were Americans. And what you're doing is you're trying to equate what was happening in the Second World War with Japanese people who are our enemy. This is not, okay, no, but that's what I was hearing. That's what I was hearing. Yeah. it was dangerous but 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 you have you have to disconnect right. japanese americans from japanese right. you really do okay <laughs> no <laughs> I, I i can get <laughs> vicious
1: <laughs> do you see yourself as an icon
0: no <laughs> No, but 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 it was really really great to get to be named by Glamour magazine as a Woman of the Year. Yes, I, <laughs> I love that part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really am, I am wondering who whoever,
1: whoever arrived at that. I don't know. <laughs> okay, you've had many lives. Yes, and many more to come. What life do you look back on most fondly?
0: I think that my greatest satisfaction came from, from producing and raising children. I really, really love uh, the fact that I think I gave birth to my best friends. <laughs> oh, wow. And that really has been, that's been, yeah. Everything else fits around it.
1: And you have a long lineage, great-grandchildren, grand, yes. great-grandchildren, two? Yes. How old are your great-grandchildren?
0: Three. Three? Three. No,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, what's on your bucket list still?
0: I'm trying to find a faustian bargain for another 10 years. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go kicking and screaming.
1: <laughs> but like you know, I know something like flying, jumping on a plane, like anything extreme on a bu- jump on a bucket list.
0: No, my life has been, has provided so much that I cannot imagine. I can't imagine wanting anything more. If I die tomorrow, I I am way, way overdrawn at the life bank. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So RBG, we always look at her, as she's another female icon who has her intense workout, she does every day. Do you have anything that you do daily to keep active? The only
0: exercise I get is jumping in and out of cars.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Any other secret? I mean, do you, some people say, oh, I have a glass of wine a day, Or anything? No. No. <laughs> no. Lots of peanut butter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Okay. I do like peanut butter. Um, so. I mean, we'll open it up to questions now, but I guess when we just, last question for you now is when we we talked about how we're in your future now, but what about your great-grandchildren's future in 50 years, 60 years? What do you hope um, that future is like?
0: I'm, I'm, I know how my generation met the threat of its day. Many threats. Um, I think that the one that, consumes my life now as that threat of the World War. But the fact that we've been engaged in wars ever since that time, um, I would wish world peace for my children. Um... I don't know how we're going to deal with rising sea levels and global warming and climate change. But I do believe that the answers are already with us, that they're going to emerge from a generation to come. Um, I have great faith in the fact that that's going to happen. Um, I don't know what the world's going to be like for my kids. I can't. I come from a time where the rate of change has been accelerated to such an extent that my grandfather could tell my father what the world was going to be like when he grew up and preparing for it, and it would be that way. And my father could maybe tell me and maybe semi get there. I don't know what the the rate of change now. Generations are measured in three-year cycles. I mean, I don't know how how, what the world is going to be like, so I wouldn't guess, I wouldn't attempt to guess how my kids or my grandkids are going, what they're going to do, but I know, I am con- absolutely convinced that the answers that we so sorely need are already upon us, that they've been born, that someone said that, that the woman, the, the person who's going to live to be 150 has already been born, and someone else said, "I hope it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg." <laughs> <laughs> I
1: know. Every time she goes in the hall. <laughs> <home. laughs> uh, should we open it up to a few questions? Do we have time for a few questions, Lisa? Cool. Okay. Anyone have anything they want to ask? Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your singing and the song. Mm-hmm. Did you write your own songs?
0: Yes, my songs. I'd like, I think if, if we're going to end soon, I'd like to play the song that was written, the entitled books, the entitled the books, mm-hmm. if we can do that.
1: Mm-hmm. When did you write that song? What did I do? When did you When did you write that song?
0: Um, in 1964. And let's see if I can find it. I don't know. I don't know if I can find it. It's called. It's called. When This is the first song I wrote. Turns cold out and leaves me
1: wondering if all. Who's on the piano? Has
2: now been. And if all I am to grow, to sense, to hear, to see, to know, if all I would to feel
0: has flown with the wind, then I bleed my lonely And climb a hill where soft earth fits my foot and I can make the world be still
2: while my arms outstretched hold sun and clouds and sky.
0: And the wind holds me in love, and
2: I'm all I
0: This is Sign My Name for Freedom.
2: It's nice, it's arcade,
0: Them because the the filmmaker has they're, they're being used as a soundtrack for a, a documentary and it won't be released until the film is released and it'll be released as an album. Oh, that's yeah. so bad. oh good. And I've, I've I've never I've never played those songs publicly except for this last one which I've somehow incorporated into my presentation sometime. Oh. But you just, you're just supposed to forget what you heard all those other ones. <laughs> <laughs> when I came in, the music was
3: playing. I, it? When I came in and the music was playing, I thought, well, this is wonderful. And I thought, shoot, I don't know who this is. And I tried to shazam it and nothing came up. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? And then, and then,
1: anyway. You're very talented. <laughs> you know. So when is that documentary coming out?
0: Um, there's one coming out in about a month. And that's... Ninety. That's an hour long, and then there's a ninety minute dot coming up the end of the year. What, what, it's in production.
1: Okay. And what, what platform? Where could we watch them?
0: Uh, I have no idea. Okay. I. I. Yeah, I um,
1: Is one PBS? You said or no? PBS. Yeah. PBS. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we look forward to that. Yeah. Does anyone else have any other questions? Yeah.
0: I didn't ever record. These tapes were unreal um, to real. Um, I used them sometimes when I was singing at either church or a school. Um, and it was a secret life. I wasn't really sharing any of this publicly, and I was doing most in the suburbs. Uh, when I turned my back on them was a time when I was kept being discovered, and, and each time I would back off, because I had four kids, and my youngest, as I hear, was handicapped. So I didn't want to do that. I loved to sing, but I didn't want to be a singer. I mean, you know, and you can't take, keep those things separate, I, I learned, but I went back at one point for two weeks Having been discovered by Henry Hampton, who was the producer of Eyes on the Prize, remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, he brought me back to Connecticut to work with a musical director for two weeks, from preliminary to going in to audition for Max Gordon at the Village Vanguard. And 18 hours before that audition, I got on a plane and came home. And I shut the door on that, Betty, and simply didn't take it out. Now, the hardware for playing those tapes disappeared long ago. I donated them somehow to Goodwill or something. But that box of tapes, there are about 30 of them, had been moving with me. Every time I moved from place to place, I kept hauling them around, but I hadn't heard them for 50 years until the filmmaker... um, at some point it came up in the story and I, I uh, played a little, oh, on my 90th birthday, I had a Road Not Taken concert and I had, had uh, uh, seven songs put on a CD and gave them to my friends as a, as, friends who didn't know that I sang or that I was a writer, I gave them as, as a party favor and so I brought one of them out and played it for the filmmaker who went, eh, you know. Uh, and he took, we, we went in, he took the reels, had them all digitized, and I heard them for the first time uh, about two years ago. And now they're becoming the the uh, soundtrack for the film. Yeah.
1: Who played the pia- piano on them? Who was the instru- doing the instrument?
0: There there is no they're they're mostly me on guitar, and then there there is one tape that was done at Sacramento State um, actually, with Rick Maston, who was a poet, from big sir
2: um,
0: and I guess Earllis Jedlica, who was a folk singer, we did a concert and and i oh, and then there there was a physician from Kaiser who was also a jazz pianist who lived in Orinda and I used to go and jam with these people and he played jazz piano and there was a guitarist and a drummer and I would sneak out at night and go jam with them and so they have a, a, a about five songs on a, on a reel. So now I'm hearing, I'm listening, I go around at the park and I've got them on my cell phone and sometimes, before my programs, I'd go sit, sit behind one of the exhibits and listen to myself 50 years ago. <laughs> and as I say, I can't compete with that Betty Zoe. So. <laughs> Do you
1: still sing, though, currently, for no? fun? Do you still sing? No. Oh. We couldn't entice you now?
0: No, when I moved back out of the suburbs into the, into the city, I came into the world of the university. I married A professor at the university. And that Betty didn't come with me. And so I moved into a world where no one knew that person. And um, it was easy just to forget that. Mm -hmm. Until my 90th birthday. Oh yes, I keep forgetting oh, that. So you
2: do. I sing had that, yeah. I had
0: the opportunity back in December <laughs> yeah. to sing with the Symphony, <laughs> <laughs> and one of my songs is going to be featured at their April concert, mm-hmm. done by the up the uh, Symphony uh, Choir. Uh, and another of them is being done by the a the, uh, cappella group from the Oakham School of Performing Arts, oh. high school kids. Uh, and another is going to be done by the like middle school kids. So two of my songs are going to be released before the film. Uh, <laughs> my daughter, Daria. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, any final questions? Or I think we can get to the book signing portion. You uh, we were such... one more thing. Oh, one more thing, okay.
3: Yeah, we have yeah. a special, we got a prize. Oh! So, Miss Betty was here last year, and we kind of... We oh my we God! Were, we want to selfishly say that the brick house of the Sun hero started the big <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Then, because right after, it was a little after the book had been released. She came and spoke last year, and it was delightful. delight yes. that was here. But Charlie was not here. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we had a great time. But unfortunately, oh, this wasn't beautiful. able to be presented because they came a little too yeah. late. Oh, so, that's beautiful. If I may read you, yes. it's a California state resolution Ooh. by the Honorable... Richard Pan's 6th Senatorial District, relative to commanding Betty Reed Soskin. Whereas a remarkable witness and an outspoken chronicler of the Civil Rights Movement in California, who at the age of 96, also distinguishes herself as America's oldest ranger with the National Park Service, Betty Reed Soskin will make a much anticipated appearance during the Sacramento book signing event on March 25, 2018 in celebration of her recently published memoir, Sign My Name to Freedom, at which it is appropriate to recognize her with special honors and commendations her life of of purpose as a singular historian, a contributor to societal change, and a very long-standing public servant. Where, I'll skip down to, whereas from the content of a blog she started for the benefit of her children and grandchildren in 2003, and now as thousands of followers, an interview she, came, she gave for Bancroft Library's Regional Oral History Program, Betty wrote Sign My Name for Freedom, published in February 2018, an indomitable effort born out of conviction, struggle, and love for which she is deserving of both admiration and praise, now therefore be it. So be it resolved by Senator Richard Penn that he applauds Betty Reed Stoskin for having written her indelible memoir, Sign my name to freedom, commends her for her exemplary record of personal, professional, and civic achievements, and extends best wishes for the success of her future-worthy endeavors. Members, Resolution number 247, dated this 25th day of March 2018, Honorable Richard Pan, Sixth senatorial district. Oh, thank, yes. you. Oh, yeah. so, cute. thank you. Oh,
0: that's beautiful. Oh, that's so
3: beautiful. Um, so, we oh, thank you so, thank you so much. You.
0: Thank you so much for honoring us and, oh, that and is being lovely. here in Sacramento with us. It's oh, so that's lovely. Thank you. Give it up for thank you. <laughs> oh. oh, that's so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. (laughs) Oh, that's gorgeous. (laughs) 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 That's what you had to be back, right?